Welcome to an original series, the podcast celebrating our favorite TV shows behind the paywall. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me celebrating the world of long-form storytelling is, of course, my friend and co-host, Adam. Hey, Patch. I have to, before we get started, I just realized I'm wearing a special shirt for tonight's recording, and I'm going to, because you can see me, I'm going to show it to you here. Okay. Oh my Oh my gosh. You can't see this. He's got a Hawkins Middle School AV Club (laughs) t-shirt. I didn't know those things existed and now I'm jealous. <laughs> well, my wife bought me a couple of years ago for Halloween. She bought me a Dustin Halloween costume, which included this shirt, a wig of curly hair. Yes. That you put on. And then his like white, blue and red baseball cap. Oh, the flat top hat. Yeah. The, yeah, the flat bill so hat. That was basically the extent of the costume. Like it was a package. <laughs> and so the, the hat and wig are gone. I don't know what happened to them, but I kept the shirt. The shirt's kind of cool. The shirt's epic, man. This is, that's really great. <laughs> <laughs> we were podcasting a, a while back and he showed me his Cobra Kai t-shirt that I thought was pretty fantastic too. The, uh, the, uh, it was not Cobra Kai, but it was the all Valley tournament uh t-shirt yes. like you actually went to the event and got to see daniel and johnny go at it because i'm assuming that was representing the 1984 yeah it's like it's like the logo as if it was a real event there's no mention of karate kid or cobra kai on the shirt anywhere it's just like the all valley logo but and only somebody that remembered and knew what that was would be like oh man i know what that's about so, good. so yeah so good in my uh in my <laughs> long tenure of being a husband my wife has come to know that i've grown to love graphic tees like i've moved away from just plain tees and striped tees and now i'm into the graphic tees and so anytime i can get one that's clever that's going to make someone laugh or my favorite one right now is a is a t-shirt that says uh things that rick astley would never do and it's got like a it's like a bulleted list that says you know <laughs> give you up let you down and it's like check mark and it says all of the above it's yeah. just yeah lots of fun Definitely love the graphic tee you got going on. Yeah, me That's too. I've stuff. got, I, I love that stuff. Well, we are in episode three, Stranger Things season one called Holly Jolly. I'm pretty sure this is a episode that takes place around Christmas. Maybe not Christmas centric, but definitely during the holiday season. Le- leading up to Christmas. Leading up to. Yeah. That's right. Because I think we established, yes, the opening episode was uh, late November, early November, I think. It was definitely yeah. fall. So here we are, I guess, moving into early December, and uh, well, let's get into it, why don't we? This episode was directed by Sean Levy, the first of two that he directed in this season after the Duffer Brothers directed the first two. Yeah. This was one, I think, Adam, that when we talked about those first two episodes, I think you'd mentioned on the last episode, or at least talked to me offline about it, that those first two episodes felt like an extended pilot you know, I've got a feeling because I know Sean Levy's he's doing this one and the next one. I'm pretty sure that we're going to get some more of that since he's got, you know, a grouping just like they do. And so I'm excited yeah. to see where this episode goes. Knowing Sean Levy like I do, you know, we have lunch. No, we don't have lunch. <laughs> I just know his work. He's very character centric. And I think that's one thing I really enjoy about his stories from the director's chair is that he really focuses in on character development he doesn't forget about plot altogether but i saw that in this episode where we have a lot of character development we have a lot of pairings that Mm -hmm. go on and one of the things that i noticed is that this episode does play a lot with perceptions of people so we have jonathan with you know steve's gang and nancy and you got karen with joyce and her i guess we'll call it nuttiness at this point (laughs) and there's this really justified though just to be absolutely her, justified. Her yeah. son is missing. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. We've never seen Joyce for very long, at least, in a world where her son hasn't been missing. So we don't know what her normal state. <laughs> maybe if there's a prequel to this series, like you know, Life with Joyce, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe there's some a happier life where Joyce is not going crazy because you know one of her kids is missing. But I noticed that what we see here, and I think this is a. a a credit to to Levy and the team that is behind this is that we see perspective. We see the perspective that as an audience, 
you know, we know everything. We are that omniscient mm-hmm. voice, not voice, but <laughs> a set of eyes. But we can see the perspective of these characters in relationship to those that are sort of going down the the rabbit hole of craziness. You know, you got Nancy and Steve's gang looking at Jonathan like he's this you know creep because he's taken inappropriate pictures. But what we we know is that that all started with him wanting to investigate and hearing a scream and going to the, you know, to the, to Steve's house and taking pictures, albeit some of them were probably not the best <laughs> that, that he should have been taking, but the same thing with, with Karen and Joyce, you know, we've got Karen who goes over and gives Joyce a, I think it's a casserole. And I definitely miss the days of casseroles because <laughs> we don't make those around our house, but we see how Karen uh, responds to Joyce when, when she kind of gets a little perturbed that Karen's daughter is uh, is hanging out in the house. And we'll get more into the details there later. But I do think it's really interesting that we get to see really kind of a clear both sides of the story where we see the, what I would say is the normal and the abnormal, the crazy and not crazy. And of course, those are stereotypical kind of generalizations of how we would characterize each of these folks. But I do like that we see that. I do like that it's a uh, it's an episode where the cast is expanding. We're getting more screen time with some of these supplementary characters, but we're also getting more depth with the characters that we're starting to to get to know a little bit more. Yeah, and some nice quiet moments too, which I think mm-hmm. are nice, where you just you just get to be with these characters. There's not necessarily a ton of moving the plot forwards. It's just getting to know them, as you said, getting to understand them their point of view a little bit better unfortunately one person we don't get to know is barb (laughs) and that's how the episode opens up with that essentially that jump scare and she's trying to pull herself out of what we see is this kind of reverse world of some kind uh so this is the first time we get to see kind of what's on the other side of our world it's a looks like kind of a mirror image or a reflection of the world that we live in. So she's pulling herself out of this pool that's covered in like goo and it's got those spore type things that are floating around. So clearly from the last episode we know that she was taken and now we get to see what that is like from the other side. And as we've seen and what I'm starting to guess is okay, so this other world is sort of a reflection of some kind of the world that we live in. At least where these characters are. So I, I think that, you know, watching how she struggles, we hear the creepy monster voice behind her. And this scene is so good as a, as a cold open because you have this duality of her screaming and reaching and her hand grabs the ladder, I guess, the, the rail of the ladder. And it's sort of interspersed with Nancy and Steve making out and they've got their hands kind of together and it's just this kind of contrast of like scary and romantic and i almost thought could could she be heard like is her voice echoing into our world it sounded like that but i wasn't quite sure was that something that that you picked up on well yeah while nancy and steve are in bed it cuts back and forth as you said and you see you know barb screaming from the pool and you even see her point of view. She looks up at the house as if she's like, that's Steve's house. I know my friend right. Nancy's in there and she's yeah. like screaming for her. And there's even that brief moment where Barb, you know, after she screams, it cuts to Nancy and she kind of stops and, and kind of looks up as if she has perhaps some kind of psychic connection to Barb for a split second. Like she knows something could be wrong right. or she hears something or she suspects something's wrong. But then, it doesn't stop her from continuing her, I guess, lovemaking with Steve. Her rendezvous with yeah. Steve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but man. It's, it's interesting how you talked about this being like a reflection. It, it kind of reminds me of in the Star Trek franchise, dating back to the original 60s series, there have always been episodes that dealt with the mirror universe where they slip in and out of this kind of dark reality where the federation is evil and the characters are just their polar opposites right and they even kind of jokingly 
you know, give like Spock in the original episode a goatee, that means he's evil, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but, you know, it it's something that I think science fiction has played around with for a long time, this kind of concept of another dimension or a parallel universe where everything's opposite. And that's kind of, I feel like what they're getting at here is that we're seeing Steve Harrington's house, but this dark and decaying version of it. And clearly, Barb's screams are going uh, unheard, and she has no help where she is. And I guess we're led to believe that she dies from the quote-unquote demogorgon in this in this swing pool. We don't see her die, but she does get pulled down, and then she goes silent, and that seems to be the end of Barb. I think it was the pants. I think the demogorgon <laughs> yeah. did not like the pants that she was wearing, so I'm in agreement there. Yeah. I keep going back to the pants. This is Maybe the obsessive. Demogorgon will be wearing those pants later. Oh my <laughs> As a Slender Man, they, they won't fit him. It's not going to happen. They'll be really think. tight, kind of like the Incredible Hulk, like ripping. Like but up, on the, up on the knees. Pants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if that shows up, Adam, I'm going to just, I'm going to quit this podcast. This is just <laughs> And that takes us into the, the title sequence. And then we get back to um, Nancy who it looks like she just kind of feels a little bit used. Like she's going, Steve, Steve, like she yeah. needs a ride home. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. Yeah, how does she get home? I was thinking about this. She got a I, ride with Barb. I think she, she walks. Just, she walks all the way at like two Maybe. in the morning. Maybe. I don't know. Because she that's shows a good up question. at her house. Her mom's waiting up for her. And oh, man. Yeah, I, they don't really answer that. And also I noticed something when they're, when she's in bed with Steve and Steve's still sleeping it kind of looks like it's daylight outside. I don't know. It could just be the outside, you know, like floodlights that are on the backyard and the pool, but it did feel a little brighter than it should have been to me. It felt like it was morning, but then it cuts to her leaving the house, you know, wearing Steve's sweat clothes and uh, it's clearly the middle of the night. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I do know that I would not leave Steve's house that late at night because that's just creepy. And again, this is classic like horror movie stuff. Like, (laughs) naive kids going into the woods by themselves however she gets back apparently she does get back home and that conversation with her mom look you've got a daughter i've got a son at this point in my uh in my fatherhood i'm not looking forward to the day when he just blatantly lies to me (laughs) he's done that already but this whole conversation between her and her mom is just like oh gosh i do not want to have this conversation with my son coming in at two in the morning saying, where have you been? I am hopeful that I'm, will have raised him right, that he's not doing what she was doing (laughs) and that some girl's not wearing his sweatshirt coming in at (laughs) two in the morning, uh, having the same conversation with her mom. Yeah, but, you can totally uh, tell she's lying too. It's so obvious. Oh, yeah. her, and you can see that her mom knows it. I mean, in, in a way, though, <laughs> this is great acting on both of their parts. They do a terrific job at selling the fact that Nancy's lying and that Barb's mom knows she's lying, but they're just sort of <laughs> accepting that this is all that's going to come out, that, at, right. least at, at least at that point in time. Like she's going to bed, or it's going to be probably a conversation that will continue. But yeah. yeah, Nancy's mom uh, clearly was just waiting up in the dark for hours on end for her daughter to come to that front door and turn on the lights, which I think is something that only happens in movies and TV shows. I don't think any parent would ever just be sitting in a dark house waiting to like catch their child coming in. Yeah, you I know, never past did their that. curfew. <laughs> I never experienced that with my parents. I don't know no. that I'm trying to think back if I ever came in late past care. Oh, I did do that. Yes, for sure. But I always got the third degree the next morning. Like they would give me the courtesy of letting me go to sleep. They would never wake me up necessarily. But when I would get up, they would be like, so how many hours of sleep did you get? And I'd be like, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and they're like, like four. Cause you came in at four and it's eight, you know, <laughs> just, yeah. it's those kinds of conversations. So they let me sleep on it. So I wouldn't have to Say just anything make a would... call. I, I'm as a parent now. I'm like I agree. Just call and say yeah. you're late or you're coming mm-hmm. that you're okay. Most parents will be much happier if they just know their child is okay, <laughs> and especially in a town <laughs> where Will Byers went missing and they're still looking for him. So clearly, there's something bad going on. And of course, her mom's going to be freaking out if she's not calling not not showing up on time 
as much as I could see that Nancy's mom knew she was lying, I'm halfway impressed with the way in which Nancy just delivers the lie. Like talking about, oh yeah, we just went to go get something to eat afterwards. Whose sweatshirt is that? It's Steve's. And the way she goes, is so is he your boyfriend now? And it sounds so juvenile when she says that. And then she goes, no, he just impregnated me. I mean, I mean, he didn't do that, but it's like he just stole the most precious thing that I own. Uh, and and I left in the middle of the night from his house because it was so romantic. It just it's so it's so bizarre that whole conversation on a number of levels. But uh, I was kind of impressed in a bad way at how easily it was for her to, to lie to her mom. So I want to talk a little bit about Joyce. She gets a lot of screen time here, and this is where I think what we would call her craziness sort of takes a deep dive into the, the really weird of the season so far. This is probably the most intense that we see Joyce. I mean, she is committing to getting the house all rigged kind of like, you know, Griswold family Christmas style here where she goes to the drugstore where she works. And we know that she's already gotten a two week advance to get a new phone that is now broken she goes to get a ton of lights and that little bit with her and her boss, like, just ring me up. Like at this point, he's like, okay, I guess I'm just going to take a bath uh, financially because of you. Also, I don't know if you noticed this, but there's a killer nativity scene in the background. Uh, I think it's on sale in like, on like one of these top shelves. I don't know if you noticed that. I did notice this time uh, for the first time. I did notice watching this in the background. The first time I saw it, I did not notice it. But yeah, and I noticed like, that she bought another phone, and there's a phone. Oh, in there. did she? Okay, I didn't yeah, notice that. So I didn't. It was a little that, yeah. subtle thing that, like, the stack of you know, like twelve boxes of Christmas lights and <laughs> a phone. But she doesn't use the phone in this episode. That's that's what I don't interesting think so. Is... I just think she knew she needed another phone, and it looked like it was more of a modern, at least for 1983, uh, cordless phone, not another ah. rotary phone, uh, at least upon the the split second that I glanced at it, I should have freezed it and tried to figure out what brand it was and what all that, but I didn't, <laughs> but yeah, and she, she's going to need a phone. Even if she's not no longer communicating with Will via the phone, via the rotary phone, she now does need to have a phone. So she True. included that in her purchase, or I guess you would call it a loan. <laughs> that she'll from... never pay back. <laughs> yeah, she'll, yeah. <laughs> so we'll call that a student loan at this point, right? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Earlier on in the episode, we get to see a little more poltergeist moment with her where she's talking to uh, Jonathan. He comes in and she's sitting there and she's like whispering, come here, come here. I want want you to see this. And he's legitimately like, I don't know what's going on here. I'm trying to help you. And I love the acting in this scene because you can genuinely see how much he cares for her, how much he wants to understand her. He wants to believe the things that she's saying. But at the same time, he has not experienced this the moment that the light flickers, she's like, did you see that? He goes, mom, it's electricity. And all this stuff sort of harkens back to those moments in Poltergeist where mom is convinced that Carol Ann is talking to her in these different ways. And she is, but getting people to believe you, it's just, it's an absolute struggle. And so that leads to, of course, her going full on getting the lights and from a technical standpoint, Adam, I thought this was probably one of my favorite set pieces. It stands out in terms of production value, especially when you know we're watching these episodes one at a time as opposed to binging them, because I can really pay attention to how the lights are being strung. And, and they're sporadic. It, there's no method to them, but there's a beauty and an art to how they're being strung, the types of lights, and the way in which the production team uses the lights to communicate, like the yeah. one at a time leading like down a path i think later on the episode we get to that moment where she follows a series of lights to the the cupboard and then the bright white lights light up where she then is able to discover okay she can talk to will in sort of like a yes no kind of dialogue and then of course what becomes I guess, essentially famous. I've seen this pop up in other yes. places is the, the alphabet, essentially the, the Ouija board. Yeah, of, she, she kind of, of hand paints the alphabet across the largest wall in her living room with the lights kind of strung 
between each row of letters. And it's very iconic at this point. As you said, the production design really did a great job of really making this sort of iconic image that people associate with Stranger Things. And there's even a official board game of the, you know, the Ouija board game. They make hmm. there's a Stranger Things version of it that oh, wow. has that image on the front. So they totally jumped on the merchandising <laughs> bandwagon there and and saw and connected the dots like oh this yeah this is just like Ouija and yeah. uh, and made a a smart uh, marketing move. Yeah, it's a it's a cool house at this and uh and and just watching how they work i just i'm excited to see how that's going to actually play out or are we going to get different colors represent different things i have no idea but i i love the the culmination of that with the alphabet and of course it leads to what we get which is she says you know where are you and he spells out right here and then she she has that kind of tender moment like oh my gosh i can't believe it and then he spells out are you in not like are you in like the game, but yeah. art and letter R, letter U. Yeah, yeah, run. And that's when we see the face of the monster for the yeah. first time, like a clear indication that's not just Slenderman, but the face, which is really no face at this yeah, point. Yeah, first we see like a almost like a claw kind of come out yeah. from the side and kind of grab the wallpaper on the side of the, the wall because it just kind of emerges from <laughs> this one bare spot in the wall to kind of burst through and uh yeah it's a split second yeah and she just she bolts out of that house as anyone would (laughs) (laughs) after witnessing that it's interesting because her sort of obsessive behavior in stringing up all these lights really for me is reminiscent of richard dreyfus's character from close encounters of the third Mm -hmm. time when he's having sort of those visions of devil's tower he doesn't know why He's seeing them in his mashed potatoes and he's making them out of clay. And he even at one point kind of builds a giant replica of Devil's Tower in his living room using like mud and dirt from his backyard. And his family thinks he's gone crazy and he frankly has, but he has to figure out what this means. And I feel like that's kind of what Joyce is going through as well. She has to figure out what do these lights represent? Who is this? Where is he? You know, she knows she's on to something mm-hmm. and she seems to be the only one that's witnessing it, that's seeing it, but she has, she has to see it through. You know, she has to figure out what this all means. Would you believe that the first reference I ever got to that, this means something, this is important was in a Saturday night live sketch with him in it. I guess really? it was, yeah, I guess it was, in the the early 80s or shortly after that movie came out he was hosting and i think that bit got carried over into uh, uhf later with weird <laughs> yankovic and i was like what is this what are they referencing and i finally got to see it and i was like oh i get it now that's, that's yeah. really funny it's like me with Spaceballs. <laughs> i i saw that movie before i saw a lot of the movies that it was spoofing so i didn't even get the jokes until <laughs> later on <laughs> when i Finally the whole alien on. joke yeah, yeah like, I hadn't that again. Seen, when i saw space balls in 1988 or 89 whenever it was uh you know i was like 10 maybe 11 and i had not seen alien yet so i was like why is that funny that there's and i didn't know that was john hurt the same actor i know oh, yeah. I, yeah. I didn't get any of that upon my you know again this is when 10 11 year old adam was watching it i of course saw it many many times throughout my teenage years and caught up on all those sci-fi classics and got all the jokes later on. But yeah, that happens. You know, if you see a, a comedy or something spoofing something before you see the, uh, the movie that is being spoofed. Right. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about Hopper. This is really where I think we get him shining as a detective, as a policeman. He's not just eating donuts and <laughs> reciting that the morning is for coffee and contemplation. And, (laughs) and I thought this is kind of the beginning stages of that, you know, mystery box opening up. We start to get him goes to the, uh, the Hopkins lab or department of energy. Remind me again, what it's, is it the department of energy? Is that what it is? Well, it's run by the department of energy, but I think they just call it the Hawkins lab or the Hawkins laboratory. Uh, That's what they, yeah, that's what they, (laughs) it's not the Anthony Hopkins lab. That's some, (laughs) that's, I think that's in England, but this is the, the Hawkins lab. And clearly 
it's run by the Department of Energy, but is it really? Because it's it's very much a military and experimental science. And, and even some of Hopper's deputies joke that this is where they make the space lasers. You know, so there's clearly <laughs> a, funny a lot of rumor. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot a lot of conspiracy theories about what actually happens in this mm -hmm. lab, in this government facility. No one really knows because everybody it's probably one of those places where no one that works in the lab lives in the town. They probably get bussed in or, you know, flown in from other places like Area 51, which we all know is a real place. And <laughs> people apparently... Officially it is, as of like it what, is, four it years is. ago. Yeah. And they have reported that people fly to the workers that work there, fly from Las Vegas on these private planes over to Area 51. And who they are, where they live, who knows? But they don't just drive in to work there. <laughs> So. No carpooling for them, right? No. <laughs> One of the things I, I I dig about him in this episode is the way in which he discerns for us. These are these are the things I like about a procedural. Is that I'm not smart enough to go wait. What about this? I let the characters do it for me, and the way he was able to convince the guy to get in there, and then to get in there to see the footage, and then to leave, and to say okay, they didn't see anybody on the footage, but do you guys remember what happened? What was going on the night that we were looking for Will? I'm like, yeah, it was storming. It's like, did you see any rain on that footage? And I was like, oh yeah, I didn't, yeah. I didn't realize that either. I'm like, this is, I'm the deputy that just has no clue. And so Hopper being Hopper at this point, this, this really kind of, in all honesty, increased my credibility with him. He's not just a fun sheriff or a fun character. He really does have some, some chops. And I think that comes from obviously, you know, living in New York and, and having that kind of experience working in the big city. So watching him do that and then having him go to the, uh, the library and looking at all the old articles for the history of, of Hawkins and finding out everything that he does. I mean, we get glimpses on the, uh, the microfiche of yeah. things like MK ultra, you know, very much a, a real thing, but Lots of things that we're finding out about the town, about Brenner. I think there was a, a reference to um, Terry Ives. Yeah, she tried to sue Brenner and his team for, quote, taking her daughter away from her for, you know, mind control, LSD experiments that yeah. she claimed. But she was basically discredited and and ruined, you know, because mm -hmm. no one believed her. So this all is starting to make, I think, Hopper wonder, is Renner an issue here? Is he the, is he, because he's clearly the one running the lab. He's even told by one of the, the people that work at the lab that Dr. Renner is, is in charge. And so now he knows he's got a name, right? He knows that this person, he could be the linchpin for everything that's going on. And he's starting to connect those dots through these published articles from yeah. the past, I don't know, the past decade or, or mm -hmm. so. Are we led to believe that Terry Ives is the mom of 11? It's very possible if, unless there are more than one child that has been taken yeah. or, or, I don't know, abducted or whatever. Based on MK Ultra and what I know of it, I would gather there would be more than one individual that they would be working with, testing. So they probably scoured the country for anybody that exhibited any types of, you know, paranormal, you know, supernatural abilities and and then perhaps were trying to figure out a way to harness or train those individuals to use those abilities better than than they may have been able to do uh, on their own. So yeah. that's just that's kind of me just piecing it together. Yeah, uh, I I, I guess that this is this is that kind of film technique where you linger for a minute on something that could turn out to be a MacGuffin, but it usually kind of psychologically gives you this kind of like, oh, this means something. This is important. Well, and you're right. And usually in good storytelling on film or television, nothing is put in that isn't there for a reason. So right. the fact that they called out a specific person's name, Terry Ives, means something. It, there's some significance to that, whether that means that that woman is Eleven's mother or another person's mother who also had a child just like, I mean, it's like Eleven. That's, I think, up for debate at this point. We don't know enough to make a guess. But it, yeah, I agree with you that there's definitely some significance to, <laughs> to her being mentioned. 
hope she makes an appearance at some point that gives me a little like okay yeah i figured that out on my, yeah. myself i didn't need hopper to help me out with that i sussed it out with my eyes <laughs> i always love freeze framing on articles like this in films and movies and and shows and reading like all because someone took the time to like create a fake newspaper article and write <laughs> the copy and the captions and it's all like real stuff although i have seen movies where it's all like there's maybe one or two sentences then they just repeat them over and over again because oh, they're just yeah. trying to they're assuming <laughs> no one would ever you know be able to see you know that quick flash of a newspaper for and wouldn't be able to read it but it, in the in the current age of digital streaming where you can freeze everything and have a crystal clear picture you can be like no that's that's totally fake aren't you 4k <laughs> yeah <laughs> but in this case, these were really well done. Like, so if you want to pause and read these articles or read, at least read as much as the frame allows you to see, it, they do give a, a little more insight into the headlines that you, that you see at a glance. Yeah. I'll just go to Hawkins and, and look at the microfiche <laughs> if it's still yep. around. I never got a chance to actually experience microfiche. I don't know if it's still around, but with everything being digital now, I'd, I'd love to be able to kind of cross that off my bucket list of read an article on microfiche. I'm just going to keep saying microfiche because it's a it's, fun word. It's cool. Yeah. I, one of my <laughs> earliest jobs in the nineties was working at a university library where I worked in the special collections department and I had to deal with that kind of stuff, you know, archiving microfiche and, and, uh, and other documents. And it's, yeah, we're in a different age now though, where everything's been scanned and, and uploaded. It's all, you know, on servers. So I don't know if, I mean, it probably still exists, but whether or not you can go to a library and actually look at it is, I don't, I'm guessing not. <laughs> maybe somewhere, <laughs> yeah, maybe somewhere that still hasn't modernized their, yeah. their backlog of, of newspapers, but it, it makes, it makes perfect sense. It, they basically took photographs of newspapers to, so you didn't have to keep thousands and thousands of hard copy papers and you which of course would degrade and and fall apart after time anyway so this is a great way to archive them before we could scan and store things digitally yeah and let me just say this hawkins has a really extensive library of newspapers not only of volume but of types because the way in which the librarian who i guess was yet another one night stand or conquer yes. of, of hoppers <laughs> says oh yeah we've got newspapers from the times from new you know newsweek um, those are not the newspapers but she seemed to indicate that you know the major publications they have a lot of history and i'm like i don't know much about the library system but i would think in a town as small as as hawkins indiana i wouldn't think it'd be that big but you know again it's not real and we're living in this universe. So I'm good with it. Yeah. What would make more sense? Like in my hometown growing up in central Pennsylvania, there were two local newspapers and those would be the newspapers that you would find in my local library, copies of those. And those would be the ones that were, would be archived on microfiche. You wouldn't see publications from LA or New York archived in that same they might have copies come in new copies but they wouldn't archive them they were if they were archiving they would be archiving local news you know the to keep a record of what happened in that central section of pennsylvania so i yeah i don't i think you're correct i think it's unlikely that they would have in hawkins indiana wherever that might be in fake indiana <laughs> the fake town of hawkins it's in hopkins indiana that's where it really <laughs> yeah. is right <laughs> it's part of hopkins county i think <laughs> And... <laughs> that's so confusing <laughs> no. i'm confusing the listeners now that's not true <laughs> fake news adam fake news come on and that fake news is stored in hawkins indiana it's in the library they do uncover a lot of information which clearly makes hopper believe that he's onto something and he even has an interesting conversation with one of his uh, deputies where he's like work with me man like come on like let's he's clearly the only one and this is right out of script writing you know you have one character who's starting to connect all the dots when everyone else is like saying what what are you talking about it's ridiculous that's you know that's your hero character the one person that can figure it out and against all odds and against everybody saying you know you're crazy He's the one that's starting to piece it, to, you know, the pieces of the puzzle together. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great, this is a good 
example of the narrative being pushed forward and finally getting, you know, Hopper finally making some headway. Clearly in the story of my life, I'm not the hero because I'm the guy that's like, I don't get it. It's like, work with me, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about the kids. This is uh, definitely a highlight for me. The, um, the trio of kids, trio plus L. I, I think one of my favorite scenes in this episode is when it's in Mike's basement and we get this incredible contrast they start getting this contrast between Lucas and Dustin where they represent like two sides of the approach to this whole ordeal. You've got Lucas who's rational and somewhat pessimistic or maybe even a little bit optimistic, maybe realistic, I guess would be the the way to describe him. And then you've got Dustin who's more like optimistic and open-minded. And that is personified best in the way in which they prepare for their travels where you have Lucas, he brings a, I think it's a flashlight from Vietnam, <laughs> a knife also from Vietnam, and then a couple other things that are like, yeah, we definitely need these things. Yeah, a camouflage bandana, apparently. Yeah, yeah. A hammer, yeah. A hammer. and a wrist rocket. A wrist rocket, which was gave me, it really reminded me of It, the, the made-for-TV yeah. movie, the, the slingshot that was going to be the, the magical weapon to kill Pennywise. Again, spoilers, sorry, but you know. And then you've got Dustin on the other end of that who's bringing all kinds of snacks. He's got nutty bars. He's got trail mix. He's got, uh, I don't know, other Pringles, Pez, Nilla wafers, (laughs) apple. And what is his justification? He says, we need nutrition for our travels. Yeah. (laughs) And he's not wrong, but I think it just, it speaks to how these two characters are approaching what they're getting into in this whole thing where you have one guy who is just completely psyched about everything that's happening. Like, this is amazing. And yes, they're hunting for will. This is a good thing. They feel like they're, they're on a path, but then you have this other perspective of, look, I'm willing to believe that something happened and that we're probably not going to. And there's value to both of those, Adam, there's value to being able to have both those kinds of people in your world. And I think they really create a great, I won't call it foil for Mike, but I think it, it's sort of that, that angel and, and devil, like the conscious, mm-hmm. the, the two sides of your conscious conscience that are telling you, Hey, we can do this, but let's be rational about it. And I, and I think that there's such a, a great complementary nature to this trio where Mike is clearly the leader. And I think he needs both of these guys to be able to get from point A to point B in this this whole situation where he's trying to find Will. They're all trying to find Will, but I think this particular episode brings out what is really strong about each one of them. And I love that they call it Operation Mirkwood. That's great, yeah. <laughs> that they gave it a name. It's great. And what you're saying extends into the next moment where you know, again, Dust- Dustin is just so excited about the fact that they essentially have a real life superhero as a friend in L. And he tries to get her to make a toy Millennium Falcon uh, float with her mind. And she doesn't do it. And at the same time, we have Lucas continuing to call her a weirdo. Like, yeah. He just he thinks she's weird. She doesn't understand why he, she's even hanging out with them. Like he's so he's the as you said the kind of practical one, the one that is looking at this in a very logical way. And Dustin is just the opposite. He's just like sort of the the science whiz and also the most I would say intelligent of the group from a scientific standpoint. But he also just looks at the world with wonder and joy and and excitement. And like you said, with his snack pack for their journey i mean i I, i'm thinking the same thing you're gonna go out into the woods at night you're gonna bring some food you're gonna bring some snacks you're gonna absolutely those nutty bars aren't gonna eat themselves (laughs) i mean yes i would also bring a knife and flashlight and any number of those other things that lucas was bringing but i wouldn't forget the food either (laughs) who knows how long you're gonna be out there (laughs) yeah exactly so they take off and at some point I believe it's because they have to go to school. And again, Mike's leadership comes in. He tells Elle, hey, listen, um, we need your help. 
meet us after school at 3.15. Apparently she doesn't know how to tell time. And so again, we're finding a little bit more about her, about what she does know and what she doesn't know. Gives her his watch. There's this great little moment that I wanted to point out where his mom calls him to come up and he's like, and I'm at it. Like the way he delivers that line just made me laugh. (laughs) But then they take off and we get a lot of these small moments with Elle. She ends up levitating the Millennium Falcon and she does it so casually. I think it's so great where she's like, okay, I'm bored. She eats all the candy, all the, all the food. So clearly Dustin had something good to contribute. So there you go. And all, and, and in all fairness, Mike gave her permission. He's like, if you get hungry, just eat Dustin's snacks. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so she did. It did, and, it did not go to waste. Makes sense. And she's <laughs> clearly not had a lot of these foods ever in her life. So she's enjoying like Eggo waffles. She's enjoying all the, mm-hmm. the junk food, if you will. Right. Of modern day, 1983. Yes. We get some uh, some moments with her. We get the flashback sequences that I thought were very revealing. Something I noticed on this watch was that when she picks up the phone and she hears the tone, she sort of mimics it with her voice. Like she goes, mm. oh, yeah, yeah. We also get to see some classic commercials as she's thumbing through the television. And then it gets to that Coke commercial that, of course, prompts the flashback where we see her able to crush i think it's crushed the can of coke with her mind and it seems like that's probably one of the first times that she uses her power successfully and she gets a nosebleed for the first time because i think she's sort of surprised that her nose is bleeding and that's where we get some of those moments with brenner and her um i don't know if he's that's where he says incredible that's a that comes in and the next flash flashback that that she has uh, when that's right the cat um, yeah. outside when she meets up with the boys at 315 by the fence uh, she sees a, like a stray cat and it triggers another flashback um, oh yeah where she's sitting in a room staring at a cat in a cage and the cat is like hissing at her and she clearly is being has been told by Brenner to do perhaps bodily harm to this cat with her mind and she refuses to do it. So she has some uh, moral <laughs> um, reluctance to harm this, this cat. And she kind of, you know, gets dragged out of the room screaming by uh, two of the orderlies, I guess, that work in this lab. And as they kind of throw her into what almost kind of looks like not her, I wouldn't say this is her room. It looks more like a, Almost like a like padded a, cell, I think. Yeah, like a padded cell, or with no windows, no, no anything. Like almost like in prison when people get thrown into, you know, oh, a, solitary, a solitary yeah. confinement for doing yeah. something bad. Like she's getting punished, you know. She's getting. But before they can close the door, she opens the door with her mind, smashing one of the guys against the wall, and then breaks another guy's neck with her mind. And Brenner at this point just comes in you know, trying to comfort her. And that's when he says, incredible. Like, yeah, (laughs) like he's like, he's somehow proud of her for displaying these new abilities that she can do. And before that, perhaps she only crushed a Coke can with her mind. All of a sudden she just perhaps killed two people Mm -hmm. with her mind. So clearly he's, he's onto something with her and he's excited. And it's such a weird reaction. And protective too. Yeah, it's a real interesting duality. And I think this speaks to to Modine's acting because I'm having trouble at this point trying to understand what he's proud of. Is he proud of her as his daughter? Is he proud of her as an experiment? I think it's a different scene where we get the flashback earlier in the in the season where she's being dragged away and she cries Papa. And I thought, okay, I guess that's that's her dad. The same thing happens here. And I'm guessing that's not the same scene. That's not the same flashback that we're just seeing. Yeah, I think they're two separate events, but this this might be her routine. Like every day she's dragged, you know, out of her room and told Mm -hmm. to do something in front of a group of scientists. And yeah, it, it, it makes me wonder if he perhaps Elle exhibited powers when she was younger, but only through emotional outbursts and was never able to control them or do them in a calm setting so perhaps what he's trying to do is figure out how he can sort of channel her abilities and teach her how to control them just by sitting and like looking at a coke can and crushing it but not getting 
upset, not getting angry. But clearly when she gets angry, she gets emotional, her powers are amplified as happened in that scene when she killed those two two guards. And yeah. I, and maybe that's what Brenner was hoping would happen. Maybe he was hoping to trigger her to see how far she can go, right? To see what to as a scientist, like to what extent could her mind what could she do with her mind right and clearly yeah. that's a huge again there's no moral explanation for this or <laughs> no. or defense for this but but again he didn't kill those guards she did <laughs> so <I> did. <laughs> come on no man that's not okay that's that's not cool i i think that's where i struggle with him because he does this thing and this is the body language that i think is is so brilliant with him is that he picks her up and he comforts her he says he says incredible and the dad in me is like, uh, yeah, she's incredible. And I'm glad you're holding her. And he starts carrying her and he's, he's almost carrying her like, like a dad would carry his daughter to bed after she's just been, you know, staying up late to watch a movie. But I'm also thinking, is he carrying her back to the, or the, yeah. yeah. Is he carrying her back to the lab to, to make her do more experiments? Is a cat going to die tonight? I mean, <laughs> that's, that's kind of what I was thinking is, is he, is he taking her back to her room as opposed to this quote solitary place? Yeah, I think that's what I believe. That's my impression is that with nothing to basis on, I believe that she exhausted herself to such an extent after that outburst that she, you know, she was bleeding, I think out of her ear and her nose at that point, it looked uh, like, okay. and she looked like her veins were, you know, she looked just like almost pale in the face and like breathing like she just looked physically exhausted so i'm under the impression that he was basically not going to put her instead of putting her into solitary for disobeying a command he was almost going to reward her by taking carrying her back to her her actual bed and letting her rest you know letting her her recover from this from this incident and that perhaps you know the next day they would continue on to the next experiment whatever that might be okay. but you know yeah i think a lot of this these past flashbacks are so powerful because there is so much ambiguity we don't know we're really getting it from l's point of view as a young child not she doesn't know what's going on she's had virtually no as far as we know outside exposure to anything you know to television to telephones anything to tell clocks right she doesn't there's no yeah. clocks in there she doesn't know what time is so this is her life and so we're only getting it from really from her point of view we're not seeing brenner flashing back from his point of view we're seeing her her vantage point and i think that's an interesting thing to to realize so we're seeing like if we think about what we were like when we were 10 or 11 and how yeah. we looked at the world or looked at things around us you know we might really hate our teachers for example because they were mean to us, quote unquote, but maybe they were actually doing their job, right? I'm not defending sure. Brenner per se, but he clearly <laughs> is a scientist and scientists have throughout history often done things that were morally, mor morally ambiguous. Amb yeah, morally yeah. ambiguous. I mean, even <laughs> the development of the atomic bomb, you know, is something that a lot, a lot of people have argued about. Like, was this a good thing, a bad thing? Like, did it, hey, well, it stopped World War II, but it also opened up a whole world of potential nuclear holocaust right so how far is too far right and right. clearly brenner is is going a little too far in his his need to uncover sort of the mysteries of the human mind right. is what is how i look at it he's yeah. he just like the ends justify the means to him as a scientist it seems I'm going to halfway agree with you at this point. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't trust a lot of people here. I don't trust him. I don't trust Steve Harrington with his amazing hair. I just, I think I'm not ready to trust people yet. So and maybe you shouldn't. I'm <laughs> so, not saying. I'm definitely Lucas in this scenario. I think you're Dustin. Yeah. <laughs> I am. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely more like Dustin. If I had to, if they had a quiz where we had to, uh, you know, answer some questions, I'm pretty sure I would be, as a kid, I would probably be somewhere between Dustin and Will. I was sort of quiet like Will, and I drew a lot, but I also had Dustin's sort of optimism and curiosity and enthusiasm. So, so. Take that quiz out of Seventeen magazine or something. Like, what's, <laughs> so, what's, what Stranger Things character are yeah. you? <laughs> but it would be uh, <laughs> the equivalent of uh, Seventeen for Dungeons and Dragons playing pre-teenagers. <laughs> 
whatever that is. <laughs> I'd probably be Barb. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. You would fit into those pants nicely. I could I could rock the <laughs> pants, man. Yeah. The Demogorgon's got nothing on me. <laughs> Demogorgon, not Demi Morgan. I don't know. I was thinking Demi Moore. <laughs> Demi Morgan, that's who it is. <laughs> she, she, now that's a scary That'd know. be a scary thing. Yeah. <laughs> she was she was in this alternate world, the Demi Morgan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well the the episode finishes up with the trio and L going towards Will's house. We get a really great conversation where Elle's talking about the uh, the thing on on Mike's chin. He got he gotten tripped by the bully. They were looking for rocks earlier. I love that she says, "Mike, friends tell the truth." Yeah. And then he tells her, you know, who, who this guy is. I think we get the the phrase "mouth breather." I think that's how he describes him. Yeah. And then she says, "Mike, I understand." And this kind of caught me off guard because I'm trying to put her in a box ultimately. And I'm like, okay, what does she know? What does she not? How can she speak? What is she? She can't tell time, but she can understand the concept about the things that Mikey, you know, Mikey, Mike is struggle with, struggling with. It's not bad. It's just like, that's an interesting thing for her to say that Mike, I understand. And it may be that she understands because maybe she feels bullied. She feels taken advantage of where she doesn't have a voice when it comes to the people in her life. So I think that's kind of what I picked up on is that her understanding makes sense. The way that she communicates, it feels more mature than what I've actually experienced with her. Because again, she had very little language going into this series. And so for her to articulate some of those more, cognitive ideas not saying she can feel those things or she doesn't understand i think she does but her ability to communicate that i think was really interesting that is she getting more conscious and i put that in kind of air quotes or is she kind of coming out of this fog of this experimental fog that she was in for a number of years so i've kind of been in playing with that in my head and maybe they were, you know, injecting her with drugs to amplify her abilities. We don't know, right? That that's what MK Ultra was basically supposed to have been doing. They were supposed to be like using, you know, LSD and other psychotropic drugs to to sort of amplify or or trigger certain uh innate abilities that people might have. So perhaps she is just kind of as you said coming out of this fog of those experiments that she was under. And also, we don't know. She's number 11 on her arm. Maybe there were other kids mm. that she was around at one point, yeah. and she was like the star pupil, if you will. Uh, and they focused, she was the strongest, perhaps, and they focused and sort of sec- separated her at one point. Again, I they haven't revealed any of this, so we don't know, but it, that's kind of what I like about it. I kind of like that there is all this this past mystery that we don't have answers to and right. that we can speculate about yeah. and try to figure out. Yeah. A little bit more of the mystery box opening up Yeah, and uh, the end of the episode sort of <laughs> quantifies that little bit of a mystery box opening up where we see the kids uh, going to the lake. They see the, uh, the police cars and the, the ambulance and the fire truck. And this is after we get her saying that, you know, she's pointing to the house and they're saying, where's Will? And she's pointing to the house and they're like, no, he's not there. Yeah. She says that they're, he's hiding. He's hiding. He's right, not here. Yeah. What are you talking about? He's not here. Why'd you bring, why'd you bring us here? Yeah. She's, she's confused too, though, because she obviously senses that he's there and senses <laughs> that he's hiding somehow, but we clearly can't see anything. We can't yeah. see him. And of course the next moment we get everybody down at the quarry where they're pulling a body out. And this is the ambiguity that I think is great about the show is some people are saying it's Will. I think it's Lucas who says it's Will. Mikey. It's really Will. Yeah. Yeah. Mike is not believing it. And then he of course goes off on L. Like, why did you say that? Why did you bring us here? And he's confused. And the episode really finishes up allowing us to ask the question, is that Will? Who is that dead body? Because I didn't see, there was never a close-up. It was left very much at a distance. You could discern that it was a small child, that it wasn't clearly, clearly wasn't an adult. Uh, It was definitely not Barb. And so I'm like, is that Will? I don't believe that it is. 
but I think it's um, it's interesting that we're left kind of asking that question. And I've I've looked ahead, and <laughs> the next episode is called the body, so I, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a little bit more uh, detective work <laughs> in that. If that is Will, um, something is afoot with 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 Will. Then, <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. I mean, clearly his mom is communicating with someone who she believes to be her son. So that would lead me to think that this can't be Will's body. But yes, you see a body coming out of the water, looks about his size and age, wearing the clothes that look kind of like Marty McFly. (laughs) Jeans and a red vest or something. So I I don't know. Dork thinks he's going to drown. Oh, wait, he did. No, that's terrible. No, that's terrible. Why did I do that? (laughs) Yeah, so we'll see. We don't, no one knows uh, in the show. And even Hopper, I think, as you know, he doesn't get a close-up look at the body in, in the, at the end of this episode. But you can sense that all his hope just kind of came crashing down, like that. Yeah. He's like, oh, this is this is it. You know, it's yeah. over now. Even though he was on to something in the library with Brenner and you know MK Ultra and all this stuff that he was un, un, uncovering, it's almost like all that you could see in his his expression. All that was just a waste because. Yeah. It all ended in tragedy. Yeah. And yeah, we'll see. It's going to be an interesting episode. I also love the fact that uh, the the episode ends, I think, in a great Sean Levy, not centric way, a Sean Levy touch where it's about the characters. There's that, the way the music is used. You've got uh, Peter Gabriel's cover of Heroes, which I thought was great. Yeah. And you have uh, Joyce and Jonathan embracing. You've got in a similar scene, you've got Mikey coming in to his house and being comforted by by his parents and it's a very emotional ending to the episode which in some way sort of solidifies oh i guess i guess will is dead but it's it's a cool way a very gentle way to end the episode that makes you feel like there's some closure but you know that there's not closure and so yeah. it's again duality is is all over this place and i think it's a um a great a great finish to the episode yeah well, I, I always like finding the little 80s Easter eggs in each episode. and I, I was going to ask you, did you, did you see any? <laughs> yeah. Always in the rooms, I always look at the walls to see what posters characters have. And when Eleven goes into Nancy's room, she has a, a poster of a young Tom Cruise on the wall. <laughs> I think from uh, Risky Business. Ah. And which is time accurate, that would have that came out, I think, in August of 1983, and this is clearly November, December, so it would make sense. And in uh, Will and Jonathan's house, Jonathan has a poster of Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead, and Will, Will has a poster of Jaws, which makes perfect sense with the Duffer Brothers. I mean, Hopper is a lot like in in many ways, Chief Brody from Jaws. Mm-hmm. You know, he's yeah, kind I could of see that, that archetype. Honestly, I could think about this show. If it was made in the in the eighties, you could picture an actor like Harrison Ford playing Hopper. You know, and, and if he was younger, you know, and not today, obviously. But that I think is the type of actor, or Roy Scheider, you know, from Jaws. Those are I think the types of um, actors that the Duffers were probably modeling this character after. But I think, again, how I think it was envisioned. But I think that that we're getting a whole different thing with David Harbour. He's he's making that character his own in his own yeah. way because uh, yeah. he's a he's a big guy. He's in you know, I think he's six, four. He's he's a, he's a large guy. He's an intimidating mm-hmm. guy and a gruff guy. And I think he's really he, he really owns that character and, and makes it his own. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And um, just as a little side note with him, he also appears in uh, another series that I hope we cover at some point. Uh, he's in the newsroom. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and I have not seen. I've been wanting. It's on my watch list of shows to watch. And that's one that I maybe we'll we'll cover that here one day because I have been dying to watch that show. And I just it, just like you, I haven't really had someone to sort of watch it with and mm-hmm. go through it with. So I think it's a show that might 
do well. Yes, on, it is a show that we're going to cover. It's it's yeah. Aaron Sorkin. And yeah. if we can't get the West Wing, we're going to get the newsroom. Yeah. So. West Wing is too long, so <laughs> we'll go with something yes. more manageable. That would be a whole podcast in and of itself. And that's already oh, and I just now. I see here that officially when Nancy was leaving Steve Harrington's house to get home, it says she took an Uber. Back. oh no that's not correct that's not at all <laughs> <laughs> i almost believed you i was like wait a minute yeah. is he get oh no you're lying to me no that's wrong you're just increasing my pessimism yeah <laughs> so, stop making me more lucas like please <laughs> <laughs> just... well a couple of questions before yeah. i finish up not for you to answer but these are the things i have kind of wondering. Uh, you don't have to um you know obviously is barb dead that's one that we're kind of questioning right now uh, this reverse world that we see, I wonder, can people get out of it? Or are you kind of stuck in this world? We don't really have an entrance or an exit that we've seen thus far. It, I think unless, unless when we saw that Demogorgon creature coming out of the wall in Will's house, yeah, was it coming from that world, right? If it was, and clearly it has the ability to come and go as it pleases. So that would lead me to think that there's a possibility of if you have the know-how <laughs> yeah i just uh, I yeah I, I just don't think we've seen an no. entrance we've seen it come from somewhere the electricity obviously being sort of a conduit of some kind yeah and a, but, a sign that something's but, happening but i haven't seen a portal necessarily no no um now what i have seen and this is another question i have is there was a scene in this episode that brenner and his crew are working on something there's some machinery there was a, like a giant thing that kind of came down and locked into place yeah and what we see kind of in the opposite wall is more of that growth and so i don't know what they're doing with that i'm hoping that that kind of gets sussed out a little bit more in the next episode and but... it looks like it's bigger doesn't it a little bit it looks like it's mm -hmm. ex perhaps expanding into the room and... yeah yeah. Oh, oh, you mean the, 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 the growth, the growth. Yeah. 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 I think it feels a lot like, um, again, <laughs> I need to just watch Poltergeist because all this yeah. stuff is reminding me of it, but it, it feels like one of those particular scenes where you have, um, the creature that is just expanding and just taking over whatever it is. And I think that that's, it was, I think we saw a, a scene earlier in another episode where, it had started to grow or they were, they were in that, that, that room is the same. It's not a different room, but right. yeah, clearly that growth has gotten bigger. And so whatever they're doing in there, maybe they're going to shoot it. Maybe they're going to try to take pictures of it or something, but uh, <laughs> we don't know yet. So that's kind yeah. of another question. But it's interesting when you, like you said, when we see that thing lower down and, uh, you know, from like a pulley and then like bolted into the ground, you used to see, you know, Brenner in a, you know, in a hazmat suit, just sort of standing there, arms folded, you know, staring at this organic growth on the wall and just kind of listening to it growl and make sounds. So it, it started to make me wonder, like, is this growth something that was, first of all, it's in like some kind of weird room where there's like railings and protective railings, like guarding people from falling over. And it makes me wonder, were they doing something to try to bring this thing to occur yeah, that's a, or that's a was question. it some type of accident that something went wrong? Like it seems like because it's way deep underground, so clearly, it, if you're gonna do something like how they used to test nuclear bombs underground to prevent radiation from getting out, if you're gonna do yeah. some weird, you know, experiment with I don't know, it's the Department of Energy with electricity, you mm -hmm. do it deep underground, hope that it doesn't you know get discovered or or hurt anybody. Yeah, I. <sighs> Based off of Brenner's reaction to all this stuff, he doesn't seem surprised. Right, right. He seems very matter-of-fact about all of it. Yeah. yeah, I don't think that any of this stuff that we're seeing was stuff that was planned, but I don't know that he necessarily was like, oh my gosh, what's going to... I mean, I think it's almost like they had some kind of ideology of what they were dealing with, and this was quite literally and metaphorically an outgrowth of that. So <laughs> yeah. you have, I think you have a, okay, this is what we're dealing with. And this is the world we're we're working with. Now, what is beyond that creature in terms of its origin or its uh, biology? I think right. they have no idea, but you know, from the moment that we see these spores as they're walking through in those hazmat suits, the first time we see them, 
his facial expressions clearly are like interesting interesting yeah. like it's it's not like oh my god they found me you know it's not like doc brown where he's getting no. surprised by the libyans i mean he uh, brenner clearly is you know sane or in kind of in a in a mellow place with this but he's I think... almost like spock you know it's like it's all logical mm-hmm. to him he's just yeah. like fascinated by it from a scientific standpoint but right. he's not letting it emotionally sort of jar him he's just he's there to do his job and that's it to figure out well, like, to figure out what this is you know I, th- I feel like that's all he cares about is just furthering his understanding of whatever this is mm-hmm. and and what the end game of that is i think yeah. is, is yeah. still a mystery because he doesn't yeah. seem to have a motive at this point there's no idea of weaponry there's no anything beyond discovery you know i think right. is, is where we're at so he's clearly you know embracing the scientist of of all of this and uh yeah, that just leaves me wondering kind of what this is as well. So give me a hazmat suit and let me say interesting a few times as well. And I'll be a happy camper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they clearly think it's dangerous because they're wearing hazmat suits. So whatever yeah. it is, they're not right. taking any chances. Yeah. So it's not friendly, at least as far as they know. Yeah, no no rubber gloves from the sink, you know, that you're using to to wash <laughs> yeah. dishes. They're they're going yeah. full legit with the uh, with the tape around the uh, the wrists and everything. Yep. Well, that's going to wrap up this episode of an original series. Adam, I think I've already said this, but what do we have coming up? Episode or chapter four, The Body, which is also directed by Sean Levy. And uh, yeah, this is the second of two episodes coming up. So it, and it makes sense. Like this episode ends on such a cliffhanger in terms of us not knowing what's what's going to happen. We don't know what, if this is really Will. We don't know how this is all going to play out. So, yeah, it's, it makes sense that he would carry on and and sort of perhaps wrap up this two-parter, and then we'll see who, uh, who the next director is after that. I'm excited regardless. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and joining this conversation. I'm Patch. He's Adam. And we are out of here. 